Hi, my name is Mary. The Old Testament reading is found in 1 Samuel 27, verses 1 through 4. David thought, one day I will be destroyed by Saul's power. The best thing for me to do is to escape to the Philistine territory. Then Saul will give up looking for me in Israelite territory, and I will escape his power. So David set out with his 600 soldiers and went to Achish, Maok's son, and Gath's king. David and his soldiers stayed there at Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, Nabal's widow from Carmel. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he didn't pursue him anymore. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Cor. Happy uh, Palm Sunday. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, since you are immigrants and strangers in the world, I urge that you avoid worldly desires that wage war against your lives. Live honorably among the unbelievers. Today, they defame you as if you were doing evil. But in the day when God visits to judge, they will glorify him because they have observed your honorable, de honorable deeds. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maggie. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 16, 1 to 9. Jesus also said to the disciples, a certain rich man heard that his household manager was wasting his estate. He called the manager in and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me a report of your administration because you can no longer serve as my manager. The household manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is firing me as his manager? I am not strong enough to dig and too proud to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I am removed from my management position, people will welcome me into their houses. One by one, the manager sent for each person who owed, him, owed his master money. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 900 gallons of olive oil. The master said to him, take your contract, sit down quickly, and write 450 gallons. And the manager said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 1,000 bushels of wheat. And he said, take your contract and write 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted cleverly. People who, who belong to this world are more clever in dealing with their peers than are people who belong to the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you and you alone have gathered us together. It's your kindness has drawn us to you as your sons and your daughters. And we pray that in this moment, as we look at your scriptures, that you would speak to us, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would open our ears to hear, our minds to understand. And would you get to our hearts and change us and make us more like Jesus. In your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. It's great to see you this morning. 
My name is Jason Jackson. I'm the associate pastor here at New Life downtown. Our lead pastor, Glenn Packiam, is up preaching at New Life North this morning. Happy Palm Sunday, everyone. Uh, Palm Sunday is that day where we gather together to commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we commemorate and celebrate by arming small children with sticks and branches and telling them to wave it around in a crowded room. <laughs> But on Friday, as we celebrate Good Friday, we'll give them an open flame and, you know, have a a candlelight service. So you've got that to look forward to in the middle of things. Palm Sunday marks the end of Lent, this 40-day journey, or sorry, not the end of Lent, but the end of uh, the last Sunday in Lent. And it marks the beginning of Holy Week, which brings Lent to to an end as we prepare our hearts to celebrate Easter. It also marks the end of our series called Kingdom and Chaos. We've been walking through the book of 1 Samuel. This will be the last Sunday in this series. The book of 1 Samuel is this really fascinating book that really sort of talks about the transition that Israel goes through as they're moving from this loose confederation of tribes to a united monarchy. And it really focuses on the life of Israel's first two kings, Saul and David. Saul, who becomes king and life unravels. And while he's still king, a second king is anointed, and now we have competing interests sort of at play. And while Saul is still reigning, his life begins to sort of turn in such a way that he looks to actually take out David. And so as we come to the end of the book, what we find is Saul is still hunting David, and David is in hiding, and his hiding actually causes him to leave the land. We're picking up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. It says this, it says, David thought, you know, one day I'm going to be destroyed by Saul's power. I'm not going to be able to keep hiding and running and avoiding spears for long. And so the best thing for me to do is to escape to Philistine territory to go to my enemies. And then Saul will give up looking for me in Israelite territory and I will escape his power. So David set out with his 600 soldiers and went to Achish, Maok's son, and Gath's king. And David and his soldiers stayed there at Gath with Achish and each man and his family with him. And David had two wives, which we'll talk about later, Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, Nabal's widow, from Carmel. And when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he did indeed stop pursuing him. He didn't pursue him anymore. So you find in this story is that to stay alive, David actually has to leave Judah. To stay alive, to preserve his own life, David has to leave the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David has to flee from the land and the people that he's been anointed to be king over, that he has to leave and go seek refuge among his enemies. And he goes and he flees to King Achish in Gath, the hometown of Goliath. He goes to the very place where he rose to fame by killing their most famous warrior. He now thinks it's going to be safer for me there than it is for me to stay here with Saul. And when we come to the end of the book of 1 Samuel, we find that David is actually forced into exile, that he lives in exile. Exile is a prominent theme throughout the scriptures. It's this idea that someone is being forced out of 
either God's presence, God's place, or both. That either by their sin or by someone else's sin, they're being forced out of God's presence and God's place. The first time we see this, of course, is Adam and Eve in the garden as they're sent forth from God's presence and God's place. We see this again with Jacob having deceived his brother, then leaves and flees from Esau's wrath and ends up outside of the land. We see it with Joseph where he's sold into slavery and winds up in Egypt outside of the land and away from his family. Of course, we see it with Daniel and his friends and eventually the entire tribe of Judah as they end up in Babylon. And we see it with Jesus as his parents to flee Herod end up taking him into exile in Egypt. Very similar to what we see here where there is the new king and has arrived and the existing king is threatened. And so the new king has to run and take exile. But some of the New Testament writers actually call the church, call Christians, call people like you and me as exiled people. Describes us in this way. Peter in his first letter, he addresses it this way. He says, to God's chosen strangers in the world. Chosen strangers. Exiles, citizens of God's kingdom who find ourselves living in a strange land in a strange world. People whose primary citizenship, whose primary identification, whose primarily home, whose primary home is with God, we now find ourselves in this place. Stanley Hauerwas, the famous theologian, describes the church as a community of resident aliens. It's people who live here but this is not our home. And some of us can imagine what that's like because we've had experiences in our lives of sort of a, an acute strangeness, an acute foreignness where we found ourselves living in a strange place or among strange people. For some of you, it was your college roommates. You showed up and thought, I have entered into a different world that I did not see coming and I'm going to the housing office to request a transfer to someplace else. Some of you have actually moved states, moved countries, moved cultures, and found yourself looking around and realizing, this is not where I came from. I'm not in Kansas anymore. Something has changed. For some, you ended up in a hostile work environment or a hostile study environment, and you're like, this is just, I feel so different. I feel distinct. I'm not sure what to do here. Some of you are from Texas. <laughs> And you live there. And then the Lord heard your cry. And he rescued you. And he brought you here. And you're celebrating today. We know a little bit of what this can feel like. Some of us more than others. As the story goes on, it says this. It says, then David said to Achish, if you approve of me, Please give me a place and one of the towns in your country so I can live there. Why should I, your servant, live in the capital city with you? Why should I live here in Colorado Springs or Denver? Let me go to Peyton. You know, give me a space just somewhere there. So Achish gave the town of Ziklag to David at that time. And that's why Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah until now. This is actually the second time that David actually has to run for his life and seek refuge in Gath. 
seek refuge among his own enemies, to find safety. The first time he went there, he goes to King Akish and Gath the same way. And then King Akish's men start going, wait, wait a minute, what are you doing? This is David, the guy that killed Goliath. It's not safe for him to be here. And David overheard them talking and he realized that he was in trouble. So he pretended to have a mental health disorder uh, until they was like, okay, he's fine, um, not a threat. And then he could escape and go back into Judah. Now he finds himself there a second time. And in order to avoid the same sort of tension, the same sort of threat to him, he asks the king to give him his own place. And the king does. He gives him this town. And in doing so, David actually, in his exile, establishes an outpost for the kingdom of God. He establishes an outpost for God's kingdom. Judah's king takes over a Philistine town. His 600 soldiers and all their families, they move in. And here in foreign territory, in a place where they worship other gods and live in different ways, David sets up a community that begins to worship Yahweh and live in Yahweh's way. Begin to witness to another king and to another kingdom. It foreshadows what Jesus ultimately does. As Jesus enters into the world, the Messiah, the true anointed king of the world, he comes and he says, the kingdom of God is here. He establishes the kingdom of God in the midst of the world. And this is actually what the spirit of God continues to do through the church. And this is what the spirit is doing. The spirit establishes the church as a kingdom outpost in the world. A peculiar people living in a particular place under the reign of King Jesus, witnessing to his kingdom in the world. A community of kingdom citizens, what Matthew describes as a city on a hill, or what another New Testament scholar describes as a contrast society. A group of people in the midst of the world living in a different way, showing and witnessing to a different king. Our lives individually and collectively saying something different than what the world is saying. So where the world is saying that people are sort of instruments to be used or animals to be mistreated, that people that are different from us are not like us, that we just use them to get what we want or we can treat them in different ways, the church stands and says, no, that people, every person, regardless of what label that we want to put on them is first and foremost an image bearer of God. And we're going to treat them with dignity and respect and honor and love and care, regardless of whether or not they know Jesus or not. This is who we're going to be. We're witnessing to the fact that King Jesus says, those people bear my image. They just don't know it yet. Or in a world that says that wealth is just something that we should do everything we possibly can to get, 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 and by our own hands, we collect as much of it as we can, and we build our assets, and we build our portfolio so that we might have ease in our life and entertainment in our life and collect all these experiences in this short time that we live. The church says, no, that is not what we do. Instead, we recognize that everything that we have is a gift from God. 
And we look to him and we say, God, how is it that you want me to use this to help your kingdom go forth in the world? And we take the things that God has given us and we say, we're going to use them not to care for ourselves solely or just to entertain ourselves, but we're going to look to use our resources to relieve suffering in the world. And we're going to provide for the poor and the orphaned and the marginalized. And we're going to say that as the Lord has given to me, now I give to you. Because there's something more important. We're in a world that says that sex is just adult recreation. It's just play. Or it's just some sort of biological thing that has no meaning. The church says, no. Sex is the powerful and beautiful mingling of souls. It's the uniting of two people into one flesh. That this is intimate and profound and beautiful and powerful. So it should be cared for and nurtured and cherished and protected in the context of marriage and marriage alone. Because it is so much more than just biology and just entertainment. We live in the world, but we witness to a different king and a different kingdom. It's really fascinating as this story goes on is it was something that's easily missed by us is that Ziklag is not just some random town. It's not just King Achish going like, uh, Alma. <laughs> like people just drive through there to get to somewhere else and we're not really sure what happens there. So, you know, take it. You can have it. Instead, Ziklag is actually mentioned earlier in the scriptures. It's a town that was actually given by God in the book of Joshua to Judah, to David's people. And they never captured it. And now all of a sudden here in his exile, David is actually gaining what was already God's and already given to God's people. See, when we look at David's story at this point, it looks like David's in retreats. It looks like David's losing ground. It looks like David is moving further and further away from his destiny, from the, from the call of God on his life. It looks like this is all going south and going south in a hurry. And instead, David's exile becomes a means of gain, a means of advancement, a means of something else. Same thing happens in Joseph's life. That Joseph finds himself being sold by his brothers into slavery, betrayed by his master in Egypt, thrown into prison where he's promptly forgotten by the people that he helps. But eventually somebody remembers him and he raises to the second in command over all of Egypt. And what ends up happening through Joseph's life is that he becomes a blessing to the nations. That he provides for Israel, provides for Egypt, and provides for others who come looking for resources in the midst of famine provides a place for Israel to settle, to settle where they are fruitful and they multiply and they grow into a nation. See, it's through Joseph that two of Abraham's, the promises that God made to Abraham come true. A blessing to the nations and a great nation come true in Joseph's exile. Is it possible that the place that you find yourself in, feel like you're surrounded by enemies, salted on every side. Maybe the school that you find yourself in, or maybe the workplace you find yourself in, or maybe the neighborhood that you find yourself in. Is it possible that God has you there for so much more than you realize? To set up an outpost for God's kingdom and to begin to gain ground, things that are already God's, 
already given to his people. We see this most phenomenally happening in Holy Week. That is Jesus who voluntarily chooses exile and enters into humanity, enters into the world. He's arrested, crucified, buried. It looks like game over. He enters into the most extreme version of exile, death itself. And all looks lost until Sunday. And three days later, the Lord raises him from the dead. And Jesus gains everything that was already his. We clearly see who the king of the world is. See it in that moment. And this is actually what's supposed to continue to happen through the church. That through the church, this outpost of God's kingdom, that we're supposed to be continually sort of planting flags in the ground and claiming territory for God. In the midst of a hostile world and environment, continually saying, this is not the way of the king and the kingdom. Sarah and I have a friend named Andrea who had just, through a number of circumstances, laid on her, the Lord laid on her heart the women who uh, dance in gentlemen's clubs. And so she decided on a weekly basis to go into the club and to begin ministering to women who are so easily forgotten and mistreated. In that particular context, going in and taking food and offering prayer and just being a friend. And saying, hey, you may be treated one way in this place, but we want you to know that you are deeply loved and valued by God. Her story moved my wife Sarah so much that she just started praying in the neighborhood that we lived in. There were several gentlemen's clubs around. She just started praying that they would close. <laughs> just shut them down, Lord, and put a business here that will actually dignify people. Put something else in those buildings. And while we were there, I don't know if it's for prayers or for something else, but two of them closed down. It shut down. And so we're still praying. We drive by and we're like, just shut it down. End it. The gentleman in our congregation who uh, recognized that there is a disproportionate amount of gentlemen's clubs placed around military bases. So he's been lobbying the military saying, you know what, let's make it illegal for U.S. service people to go into these places. Just find a way to shut them down because these places actually become hotbeds for human trafficking and a whole bunch of other stuff. They're saying, no, we're going to claim this ground for something different and be the kind of people that enter into those spaces. But it's not just in those extreme places that we do it. It's in being good neighbors and looking around in the places that we live in saying, oh, it looks like so-and-so needs help. I'm going to go and enter into that place. It's for those of you who open your homes to others in meal groups or in other environments and say, you know what? We do not want to be the kind of place where there are people that are lonely and feel lost and unseen. Say, no, we're going to welcome you in and say, we see you. We love you. We want you to know that there is a place for you at the table. Or there's folks who are engaged in business and industry and recognize that every business, that every industry is in some way bent or broken. And it's saying, you know what, I'm going to enter into this place as a person of God, as a citizen of God's kingdom. And I'm going to work with the Spirit to bend that back, to begin to heal the wounds that are in this workplace. Maybe the workplace is just a place that just chews people up and spits them out and says, you know what, we're not going to do it that way anymore. 
Maybe it's a place that makes a lot of profit off unjust practices and says, you know what, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to stop. We're going to live in a different way. We claim ground for God's kingdom. As we continue in 1 Samuel, our text actually becomes even more troublesome than it already has been. We recognize early on as we were reading that David has multiple wives, uh, which we're like, okay, David, the king, the one we, David, yay, um, multiple wives. It's important to know when we encounter a text like that, first of all, that that idea of taking on multiple wives is never commanded and never celebrated in the Old Testament. It's common practice in the ancient world, but never commanded and never celebrated in the scriptures. In fact, the scriptures always portray it as something that goes horribly wrong. For all the reasons you can imagine. There's not a single instance where like, oh, this is such a great thing. No, it's always problematic. But perhaps some of the most troubling things for us as people is when we read the Old Testament, we encounter passages like we're going to read next, where we see unspeakable violence. Violence committed against people that causes our stomachs to turn. That's what we see next. So David in verse 7 lived in the Philistine countryside for a total of one year and four months. And David and his soldiers went out on raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. They were people who lived in the land of Telam to Shur all the way to the land of Egypt. And when David attacked an area, he wouldn't leave anyone alive, man or woman. And he would take the sheep and the cattle and the donkeys and the camels and the clothes. And then he would go back to Achish. And when Achish would say, hey, where did you raid today? David would say the southern plain of Judah or the southern plain of the Jerusalemites. I can never pronounce that word well. Or the southern plain of the Canaanites. In other words, he would say he attacked Judah and Judah's allies rather than these other places. But David never spared a man or a woman so they could be brought back alive to Gath. Otherwise, he said, they might talk about us and say, David did this or did that. And so David, so this was David's practice during the entire time he lived in the Philistine countryside. Achish trusted David, thinking David has alienated himself so badly from his own people in Israel that he'll serve me forever. I mean, this stuff is unsettling. When we read these passages, like, okay, God, I'm not sure what to do with that. There's times we just wish that we had like a version of the Bible that was more varnished and a little less raw than these passages. And in the short time we have this morning, of course, we can't cover all the nuances of what we do with violence in the scriptures. But there's a few things that I think are just important for us to keep in mind. First of all, Canaan at the time of Joshua and Judges and Samuel is in a state of perpetual war. This is wartime continually in this place. There are these small nations trying to eke out life under the constant threat of the empires from Egypt and Mesopotamia and the threat of their own neighbors. Many of the city-states and nations that we see in and around that area are actually being ruled by oppressive puppet kings, those who are sort of buttressed by Egypt or Mesopotamian empires in order to sort of cruelly rule and control over that place. It is a world of unspeakable violence. And the surrounding nations and tribes gloried in violence. They believe fundamentally that the gods were violent. The creation stories talk about the gods creating the world through violence 
through bloodshed. And they believed that what God's wanted was violence and bloodshed. This is why child sacrifice and those things were a part of these cultures. They deeply believed that the more blood, the more grotesque, the more cruel, the more gruesome, the more the gods were pleased. So as we look around the ancient world, we find these graphic, horrific, written and visual accounts of violence put on the, on the walls of king's palaces and filling the pages of ancient literature. So in that context, no one in the ancient world will be shocked about these passages the same way that we are. No one. In fact, in comparison, the Old Testament actually seems quite mild in the context of the ancient world. And more so, Yahweh himself seems quite odd that he's never described as a bloodthirsty God. He's overly and over, over and over again described as the God who's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He's a God who tolerates violence for a time period, tolerates violence in the midst of all the things that are going on in the place that he's trying to redeem. But when he looks ahead to the future and gives his people a picture of what that looks like, his ideal future is a time when people will take their swords and beat them into plowshares and they'll train for war no more. That he envisions and longs for and wants and is working toward a violent free world, but he's working in a violent place with violent people. It doesn't help explain all of it, but it does help us to kind of keep in mind that there is something different going on. In this particular account, it's important to know that David's actions, David killing men and women, is never commanded or celebrated by God in this passage. The only person who celebrates it, it's the king of the Philistines. He's the only person who's happy about what it is that David's doing. But David finds himself in a kill or be killed situation. That's the context that he's in. To stay alive, he has to convince King Achish that he has switched sides that he's fully a Philistine at this point. He has to build and maintain a deep cover. And so he does so by attacking tribes that are living between the Philistines and the Egyptians. These tribes are actually well known for attacking Judah. That these are actually Judah's enemies, people that pose an, an imminent threat to David's people. And so to maintain his cover and protect his own country, David left no survivors. Then he gave the spoils to Achish and he lied about where he was attacking. He said he was attacking Judah and her allies rather than attacking those who were against him. And these actions, strangely, earn, David earns favor with Achish. That is, the text goes on, it says Achish trusts David. That he asked David to accompany him into battle against Judah in chapter 29. He trusts David so much, he's like, hey, come with me to attack Saul. Come and go against your people. Achish, at one point in that chapter 29, swears by Yahweh, interestingly, that David is an upstanding individual. <laughs> Low standards. <laughs> he says he's as good as one of God's own messengers. It's strange. The actions kind of remind me of that parable that Jesus told in our gospel reading where unethical behavior is commended in some way as being clever or shrewd or wise in the context of what the person finds themselves in. 
where this dishonest manager is commended for, you know, unethical behavior. It's like, well, it was a good try, though. I understand why you did it. It's commended in that way. And what we have to remember in this place is that there's no sense that for us as God's people that we should emulate David's actions. No way that we should emulate what he's doing here. However, what's strange about this story is that David's life in exile is actually compelling to his enemies. There's something about David's life that's compelling. And we should not be the kind of people whose lives look like that to compel other people. But I wonder, does our life in exile, is our life in exile, is it compelling? Is it distinct? Is it desirable? Is there something about the way that we are living in this day and age, here and now? Is there something about our lives as Christians that is actually something that causes those who are outside of the people of God to go, huh, what is that about? Why do you do that? Why do you say that? Why do you treat your spouse that way? Why do you treat your kids that way? Why do you work like this? Why are you honest about that? Why are you doing it that way? Why do you treat me differently than anybody else in my life? What is it about you and the way that you live? Why do you open your home? Why are there people here all the time taking up parking spots on our streets? Why is this going on? What is happening are our lives actually Christ-like? This is what Peter actually commends us. He tells us to live honorably among the unbelievers. Today they defame you as if you were doing evil. But in the day when God visits to John's, they will glorify him because they have observed your honorable deeds. Are we living honorable lives? compelling lives, distinct lives that cause people to shift their mindset, to ask questions. Sarah and I, when we lived in Kentucky, we spent eight years working with an organization that delivered meals to HIV AIDS patients in their homes. The organization was actually led by members of the LGBTQIA community. And a lot of those, as you can imagine, who were suffering from HIV AIDS, either their disease had isolated them because they just were afraid to leave the house, not knowing what other cold that they might catch. Or because of their lifestyle, they had been isolated, particularly from anybody who would claim Christ. So we found over the course of eight years of going and delivering meals every Wednesday night, talking to people and listening to their stories and bringing them a hot meal and saying hi and answering questions and hearing all sorts of things that we were surprised to hear. In the middle of that, not a single person came to Christ. Not one. But there were a few. Because a Christian loved them, we're beginning to wonder if God possibly could. Just because we showed up. Something about our lives should be compelling. For some of you, the way that this looks right now is that you are giving your lives away to kids and to teenagers. In a culture where teenagers are questioning their value and their worth, maybe more than ever, especially in our area where we've seen unparalleled amounts of teen suicide, heartbreaking losses, People that don't know who they are and they don't know that they're loved. You're volunteering in your young life. You're volunteering in our student or kids ministry 
or you're showing up at a school to mentor, or you're involved in social work, or you're a teacher, or you're coming along kids in the foster care system through royal family, or for being a foster parent, or being adopted, and saying, you know what? We want to live the kinds of lives that scream at kids and teenagers, you matter. You are loved. You are important. And I want to give my life to showing up in your space. It's people like you who shared the gospel with me when I was a teenager. Changed my life. Because people said, you know what? I'm going to keep showing up in these kind of way, adults who live compelling lives. This is the invitation that we're invited into. To live a compelling life in the place that God has placed us. Even if it's not the place we want to be to live a compelling life. And the truth is that no one lived a more compelling life than Jesus himself. That the world is still trying to figure out, what do we do with this guy? <laughs> what do we do with Jesus? I'm not sure about religion. I'm not sure about the Bible. I'm not sure about church. But Jesus? There's something about that guy. I, something about him that's compelling. See, Jesus, unlike David, didn't kill his enemies to preserve his own life. He didn't commit violence to preserve his own life. But instead, Jesus willingly laid down his life for his enemies. He willingly laid it down for you and for me. He gave it up. Most people in the, old, in the scriptures are forced into exile by their sin or someone else's. Jesus voluntarily chooses it. He enters into this space takes on flesh and blood and moves into the neighborhood and willingly gives his life, enters into death itself to conquer sin and death and to claim everything for God. It came into our world to bring us home, which is why we're all here. It's the life of Jesus that continually compels us to come back to this table, to remember the one who gave his life away to ask him to continually change us and shape us into his image and his likeness and to help us live compelling lives in our own exile in the name of Jesus. Thank you for joining us today at New Life Downtown. You can return to our website at newlifechurch.org downtown to find out more about the church and how you can get connected. You can email us with any questions that you have. We look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Feel free to follow us on social media as well. We're ready to welcome you into the family of God at New Life Downtown.